Welcome to the Capstone SimCast. I'm Heather Cole. And I'm Holly Stokely. We are both nurses and SIM specialists at the Capstone College of Nursing. Each episode, we will explore a new topic related to healthcare simulation. Join us as we dive into the world of simulation. Welcome back to the Capstone SimCast. For this journal club, we are gonna be discussing end-of-life care and palliative care nursing simulation. Um, we have both chosen an article to review and to bring to you guys. And I will start off this time by providing you an article from the Journal of Professional Nursing. This is by one of our former colleagues, Dr. Megan Lippy, and her team. Um, they have taken the American Association of Colleges of Nursing's essentials and have kind of cross-mapped them or crosswalked them with the CARES document. And the CARES document is the competencies and recommendations for educating nursing students. Um, and this document, there's also a GCARES, which is the graduate level or the advanced level document. And this assesses um, palliative care or end of life care competencies with nursing students. So we found, or we thought that this was very important considering how this new transition to the new essentials is happening within the next few years. And the AACN also recognizes that there should be the, uh, or they include hospice and palliative care as one of the four spheres of care um, for student competencies. So Megan Lippy and her team, they provided kind of supplemental resources and wanted to make sure that faculty had the resources that they needed to educate our students um, and to be confident in educating our students in hospice and palliative care. So the CARES document is actually, or actually consists of 15 different competencies. A lot of those competencies deal with providing support to the family, um, a lot of it is therapeutic communication, and one of the things that I loved about the new CARES document was that it also included social justice, um, equity of care, diversity, and also looking at the social determinants of health for various illnesses and various um, sociodemographic groups. So the GCARES actually has 12 competencies that it encompasses, but for our purposes, we're going to stay with the undergraduate um, or the, the entry-level nursing student. So I won't give you the whole process behind the manuscript or the article, um, but this was a team of individuals who have a background in palliative care or end-of-life care. And they made sure that all of the domains, competencies, and subcompetencies provided by the AACN actually matched with the CARES and GCARES documents. So this is very important to ensure that we are teaching what we need to teach to achieve these competencies. Um, and the major implications behind this article were that as nurses and nurse educators, it is our responsibility to be knowledgeable about the content that we're providing to our students, be confident in the 
uh, information that we're providing to our students and to also be informed of the resources that are available to our students, like the ELNIC modules. Um, I know that our school has been recognized as an ELNIC institution um, because a lot of our undergraduate students or all of our undergraduate students have to complete the ELNIC modules um, or end of life modules. So the big takeaways from this article were that faculty need to ensure that they are receiving faculty development for end of life, hospice, palliative care. We need to provide or we need to conduct a self-assessment of our curriculum to ensure that we've actually included hospice and palliative care in our curriculum. And then we also need to incorporate this into our curriculum to prepare our students prepare our faculty, and to also produce competent new graduates because that's, that's the whole purpose. We wanna make sure that our students are going out into the workforce and they are ready to deal with these, or not deal, but um, encounter these different situations. So I love this article. Holly, what did you think about the competencies or the CARE document? I loved it. Um, I didn't know the CARES document was a thing. Um, so let me ask this, let's say I'm a brand new educator, hey, I'm being asked to teach this kind of content. Where do I find these competencies? So these competencies are part of the ELNIC um, curriculum, and ELNIC is our end of life um, nursing curriculum, and these kind of span from very basic undergraduate level or entry level nursing students to practicing nurses. Um, they have specialty areas where you can go into oncology or pediatrics or primary care, um, or you can just do the basic course that we, that we uh, require our students to do. Mm -hmm. But the CARES and the GCARES are all part of that kind of module to my understanding. Yeah. I definitely think this is important for our students. They do not always get this type of experience in um, a clinical setting, but they do need to have that basic foundation because like you said, this is part of nursing. We are going to encounter those situations probably more frequently than we would like to in, in the care for our patients and in all populations and in all settings, which leads me to my article that I chose um, which is also from the Journal of Professional Nursing, and this was written by Stephanie Clark and our uh, very own Dr. Megan Lippy. Um, and it is Vicarious Learning and Communication Self-Efficacy. And this was a pediatric end-of-life simulation. And one of the reasons I chose this is because it was pediatric. And a lot of times when you think pediatric care, end-of-life is not the first thing that pops up into your mind. Of course, we don't, we don't ever want it to be. But unfortunately, that is something that our students may have to encounter. Um, so it did, of course, mention that, you know, palliative care is one of those uh, four elemental spheres of care that our students need to be equipped with. Um, but they actually found a gap in their literature review uh, related to end-of-life care education for our students. Um, so they did this study, it was a multi-site, which I thought was really great. So they did this at two different facilities. Um, and they were exploring self-efficacy for communication before, right after, and then after the debrief of a simulation. 
So they had 100 participants, um, all students. So they either had to be enrolled in um, an OB or in a pediatric course. Um, they were senior nursing students. So these are those that are about to graduate very close to that. And of course, they had to be 18 or older. Um, so they had two different groups. They had an active group who actually participated in the simulation. And then they had a vicarious group that actually observed the simulation um, in a classroom setting. And then they use the self-efficacy and communication scale. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it is a nine question um, survey uh, and they're Likert questions on a scale from zero to 100. And they had the students complete that survey um, right before the simulation, right after the simulation, and then after they debrief. And both groups completed this. Um, so the simulation itself was a very detailed script, which I love that they were specific about that because it keeps it the same for everybody. Um, and that's what we want. We want that continuity for all of our students. Um, the patient was a nine-year-old, um, you know, dying from leukemia. Uh, the, of course, the nine-year-old was a simulation mannequin. Um, and then they had a real-life person playing the mom. So they had five different phases, and I thought these were super interesting phases. So the first phase, they were in the conference room with the mom, and they also had um, a faculty member playing the role of the oncologist. In the second phase, it, they were in the conference room with just the mom. Um, in the third, they were in the patient's room with the child and the mom. Um, in the fourth, the patient passes away, and they made a special note that it passes away the, while the mom's sleeping at the bedside. So I know that had to have played a role in having to wake mom up to let her know what was going on. Um, and then five was post-mortem care and then funeral plans. Um, and the whole time it was communicating with the mom. So I really didn't see anything that talked about communicating with the child, um, but it was really more communication with mom. Um, that had to have been like an experience for those students. Holly, I love this article. It was well written. Um, I loved that there were vicarious learners and then also active learners because the literature shows that we learn through observation as well, which goes along with their theoretical framework of Bender's social cognitive theory. Um, and then I loved it. They actually did the survey at three different time points. I know we do a post-simulation survey. However, it's nice to, or I guess a post-debriefing survey, but it's nice to see how it was or how they felt baseline. Mm -hmm. um, we kind of always forget to get that baseline data to see how they feel going into the simulation. So, but then again, that was one of their limitations was that, hey, we collected all of this data in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. So students became familiar with that survey. So I do wonder how it would be if we were to do this simulation at the beginning of a semester and then redo it at the end. Yeah, give, yeah. redo it at the end or give them the survey at the end mm -hmm. of the semester and see if there were any changes that way. Yeah, one of the things they found, um, they did note in a significant increase in self-efficacy. Um, but then kind of going back to what you're saying about, you know, those observational learners, they had a significant increase across the three surveys where they, um, 
you know, at the end, I really felt a lot more confident in the ability to communicate um, during that type of situation. So I definitely think you can learn and gain a lot of knowledge from participation, but also just from that observer role. Absolutely. That goes into our learning styles too. Um, I always go back to the learning style, but I think the some of the results for the observational group or the vicarious group, they actually had improved or decreased levels of anxiety during mm -hmm. the simulation because they were able to focus in and pay attention to what was going on in the simulation. Now, I, again, I would like to see how they retain that knowledge mm -hmm. moving forward. Or, But I think that it was great. I mean, we don't do a lot of vicarious learner experiences. We don't. I would love for us to do more of that. Mm -hmm. Because I do think it takes away the anxiety of being in a simulation. Mm -hmm. Because I, the literature is definitely out there, and our students love to tell us all the time that simulation makes them anxious. And I don't know if it's just... I think part of it is they know they're being watched and evaluated. Um, so anxiety is always heightened. Um, but when you're observing, it takes that anxiety away a little bit. Of, oh, I'm not being evaluated based on what I say or do in this situation. So I thought that was really good. Um, for some of the future research ideas that the author did mention that they may want students to interact with the child more mm -hmm. than just the mom. And, you know, this article is looking at therapeutic communication and how they are communicating. So, I mean, I can see adding in having to communicate with the child or having mm -hmm. to communicate with a sibling or have a mom that's accepting, but maybe a dad that's in you know, an anger kind of phase oh, or a yeah. denial phase, like have, but you know, you don't want to overwhelm students. No, we, we don't. And I think keeping it to communicating with just mom was probably a really good idea, especially if this is their first experience ever having to, you know, confront an end of life situation. I, I can see the anxiety being worse and you know, the experience being maybe a little traumatizing, having to communicate with a child, even just a mannequin, about, you know, death and dying. Absolutely. And that's a different, that's a whole different communication aspect too. So we're going, this was focused on communicating with an adult, communicating with a child, that's two completely different um, skill sets, or at least that's how I see that. Yeah, because they're at a different developmental stage, so mm -hmm. you have you may have to phrase your questions differently, or phrase your answers differently, or you know explain things in a different way to where they would understand. But I mean, I could see using this over time in a semester where you introduce students in first semester to a basic maybe do the post-mortem care yeah. where the, the communication isn't necessarily there with the patient, but you are providing that post-mortem care. Then second semester kind of building and talking to the adult patient. Mm -hmm. And then in third semester, adding in that family member and yeah. then fourth semester, then you, then you have you your pediatric yep. simulation. Um, and that's just how our institution or how our curriculum grows flows yeah. or grows but um i think that would be a great opportunity of oh, course absolutely. one of my questions is 
would there be differences in the faculty's perception of how the students performed? Um, we look a lot at self-efficacy mm -hmm. and how you perceive, which is very important, and okay. I, I don't discredit anything um, self-efficacy-wise, but I do think it would be important to see how the faculty would have rated or scored the students in therapeutic communication. Right. Maybe if the ones that were observing could actually rate their peers. I think that would be a good take on it, especially if students hear that their faculty are rating them, that that changes the game across the board. So say we're gonna look at how you perceive this, diminishes that anxiety a little bit versus your instructor is going to score you here, um, heightening that anxiety of feeling like you're being graded. Yeah. Almost. Um, or maybe, I don't want it to be deceptive, but no. maybe have the observers or the vicarious learners scoring their peers from that conference room and then using that in the debrief because the the vicarious learners mm -hmm. were very attentive and they had to listen to everything that was happening. Um, so I don't know. But then, of course, you don't have a scoring or rating for, for your vicarious learners. But just something yeah. to think about. Maybe that should be the next tool they, they right. work on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, in a little bit, we're going to be joined by Dr. Megan Lippy, um, and we're going to get a chance to pick her brain about end-of-life um, simulation, but also um, about the CARES um, and her work with that. Absolutely. We thank you. And here is our interview with Dr. Megan Lippy. So today we are joined uh, by Dr. Megan Lippy. Um, we're going to let her introduce herself and tell you a little bit about her background. Hi, I'm Dr. Megan Lippy. I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio in the School of Nursing. And I also um, have a joint appointment with the End of Life Nursing Education Consortium, where I'm a co-investigator of their work in supporting schools of nursing with hospice palliative supportive care. Well, Megan, we are so glad to have you. When we started looking for articles for our end of life journals, um, your name was at the top of the list. So like the first several articles, Megan Lippy was a part of it and we have the joy of having worked with you in the past. So we could not pass up this opportunity to have you. Um, so we're gonna start off with a pretty simple question. Um, why is end-of-life simulation important for nursing students? Well, one of the things that I always tell my students when I'm teaching them is that unless you work in a department of one where you're the only person, chances are that as a nurse, you're going to be at the bedside of somebody who's seriously ill and dying. So this is a it transcends lifespan, right? It's not age-restricted. It's not condition restricted, right? Um, everybody dies. It's just a question of when and how. And so all nurses need to be prepared to provide that kind of care wherever they are in practice. You know, those who want to work in NICU, we know that newborn babies die. We know that people who work maternal newborn, we have fetal demise and we have, you know, mothers who have postpartum issues and die. I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's not just in ICU and ER settings or in hospice only. So because of that, it's it's a skill that all students need to have. 
And one of the things that that those of us in palliative care are really thankful for is the new AAC and Essentials in 2021 that named the four spheres of care, identified hospice, palliative, and supportive care as one of four critical areas that students need to be educated and prepared to enter practice to provide, which we felt very seen and legitimized <laughs> at, that, at that point. Um, so not only the end of life piece, but really that whole continuum of palliative care of beginning at diagnosis with that serious illness, how do we support those patients and their families at that point? And then along that entire disease trajectory up until death for the patient, and then even in the bereavement period for the families and the caregivers and that person's social system. So Megan, you know, I'm going to ask you a competency based question because that is my research focus. Um, But how can we use simulation to evaluate the end of life competencies um, that we might not be able to assess in a classroom setting or in a clinical setting? So one of the things that we hear a lot about in this world of caring for patients who are very seriously ill or those who are dying is a recognition by nursing nurses and nursing faculty that that really is a sacred time for patients and families. So when we're in clinical settings, there's almost this wanting to protect that space for patients and families and not necessarily insert a student into that dynamic. I don't think that, I mean, that's not my preference. I think that students should have an opportunity to be at those bedsides and provide that care and um, experience that along with the patients and families. But we do, I do recognize that there's some facilities that may not allow that. There's some faculty who aren't comfortable with that. But we still need to make sure that our students are prepared to provide that care. What we don't want is what I experienced as a new nurse, where I entered the profession and I got basically on the job training for the most part with end of life care. Um, and so lots of, you know, missteps early on in the career where I feel like I I could have probably done something different to make that patient or that family's end of life even better. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things that because of all those re- restrictions, simulation allows us to create those sacred spaces in an intentional way, whether it's um, a, a very targeted end of life uh, simulation that could be in the acute care setting. It could be community-based, could, you know, I, a fair number of schools tend to do like a hospice simulation, which is great. Um, but then also there's also opportunities with simulation to think about that, again, that palliative care spectrum of how can you utilize those simulations you're already doing. These patients are all seriously ill. I mean, these people have a life limiting condition um, they're in the simulations we typically design where there's some sort of symptom burden or there's a caregiver need or there's social or spiritual distress, right? It's not always just physical. When when faculty craft these simulations, there's a lot of palliative care threaded in there. So it doesn't even have to be a quote unquote end of life only. Those principles could apply to even simulations that are being done now um, in a lot of schools. So uh, for our journal club for this oh, sure. season, we pulled different articles and I found your article that looked at the CARES document and mm-hmm. how you looked um, or crosswalked it with the AAC and Essentials. And I liked that the second edition included 
um, social justice, equity, diversity, and the social determinants of health, because mm-hmm. those are all really big elements of the new essentials. Yes. Um, so I just thought that that was a great addition. And I was not familiar with the CARES document. So I think that that is great. So that's something that we could definitely base our simulations off of or structure our simulations by to ensure that we're providing those, I guess, um, I guess the most valuable experience for our students. All right. So we have, um, so there's CARES, which is the company competencies and recommendations for educating nursing students. Uh, those are specifically kind of entry level or undergraduate focused. So if you think about within the new essentials, that novice learner, and then the G CARES is the graduate equivalent. So really targeting the advanced learner. The initial CARES and G-CARES were developed several years ago. And then with the release of the new essentials, we were, uh, I led the group that that did the revision, making sure that we were reflecting updates in the practice of palliative care, thinking about the social context in which nurses practice, but also reflecting meaningful language changes that, that and especially those concepts that are now in the new essentials. Um, and, and those are designed to really guide schools of nursing and uh, with regard to what are the competency expectations for students graduating from those programs within that hospice palliative supportive care sphere. So really sort of mapping it out. There's a lot of schools that will maybe identify one or two or three of those CARES or G-CARE statements to sort of be the learning objectives for the simulations that they do. Um, also in, I think it just got published in 2022, but my colleague, Dr. Andrew Davis, and she was on the CARES GCARES team, but she and I had NLN funding a few years ago, and we've developed a competence assessment tool that's palliative care focused, but it has more of those behavioral outcome measures, things that you could actually see a student do. Um, so we've seen people choose one of two things, right? Where some schools like to use CARES GCARES, those are freely available on the LNEC website. Those statements are all AACN endorsed. Um, and, and again, that alignment you mentioned, we mapped those statements to all of the essentials, concepts, competencies, domains, subcompetencies, really trying to take that, demystify what goes in the sphere and just let schools of nursing figure out how they're meeting the subcompetencies and how it all fits together. Um, but then we also have this, this new tool um, that, that we've, we're still always revising all of our instruments, but it has real specific behaviors. And there's, we're looking at how those work in simulation. So more to come on that, but really trying to see, can you be intentional about looking for specific behaviors as well that would cue us into somebody providing competent palliative care? So, you know, we've talked a lot about look, you know, looking for specific behaviors from students and um, the benefits. So if a student is going to participate in a palliative care in an end of life sim, how, from a faculty standpoint, how should we tell our students to prep or what things can we give them as part of prep work before this sim so that they're successful? Mm-hmm. One of the things I think is- I mean, always helpful when we would hope it would be curriculum would be the LNEC modules that are, which are online under, you know, undergraduate or graduate modules. 
Some schools use that as a pre pre assignment. Um, one of the things that I think is just fundamental across any palliative and end of life education is doing what we what we would call a content or a trigger warning, but letting students know in advance and not even the day of, like what letting them know well enough in advance that this experience is going to touch on end of life or it's going to involve situations that might be difficult for that student. And they need to be allowed the opportunity to advocate for themselves because we don't always know their life experiences. We don't know what griefs or struggles they're currently in. And what we don't want is for a simulation or any of that teaching to be activating for a student and putting them in distress. So content warnings are really important, especially with this subject matter. Um, I don't think it's fair or just to the student to throw a death at them as like a curveball. That's not the purpose of the learning. It can create a lot of, of psychological, spiritual distress for students, physiologic stress for them. Uh, so letting them know well in advance. I think when you do simulations, being mindful about what might be a meaningful art alternative if the student tells you like, this is just not something I can do right now with where I'm at in my life. Balancing that though with caring for patients who is, are dying is tough, right? So we can't always avoid it. We at some you know, at some point we want to encourage those students to step in and start building their confidence with that. But if they've just lost a loved one, you know, in the prior weeks or months, and they're still processing that grief, it, it could be that that scenario is very again activating or triggering those past experiences and really taking a step back as an educator and asking, is that student in that state going to actually be learning what we're hoping they learn? Are they going to be meeting the objectives? No, they they wouldn't. Um, so there's that piece of it. I also think it's important on the back end of all of those to make sure you are connecting students to some additional resources for follow-up, whether it's the campus mental health services, whether it's letting them know faculty members who might be available, um, where I teach, again, I'm kind of I'm the palliative care faculty in a lot of places. And I will tell faculty, send your students to me. If you're not comfortable debriefing or, or navigating that, send your students to me. I'm more, I'm very comfortable in those conversations. So if you as the faculty aren't comfortable, is there somebody in your school who could be that point person? Because it could be that day, it could be a week later that something triggers for that student and they need some place to discuss and debrief and not carry that on and not being able to figure it out. So, yes. Oh, um, yeah. like, actually, like teacher. Yes, Holly. No. <laughs> Heather. I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt Holly. No, so it's fine. I can go on for a while. So y'all are going to have to rein me in because this is like my thing, right? So um, I think it's great that you said like we need to be prepared as faculty to have those conversations or identify someone that's comfortable having those conversations. Um, in this article as well, it says, you know, as nurse educators, we are to be knowledgeable we are to be confident and we are to be informed. And that's not for just here in academia, but also in the hospital, because it's all about, like you said earlier, it's our responsibility as a nurse to care for that patient. And you never know when that opportunity may come along. But um, my background is in long-term care. So though I wasn't a palliative care 
or hospice nurse, it was part of everyday life. Um, You might not be specially certified in it, but you were absolutely a palliative care nurse, right? Exactly. Yes. And, you know, sometimes it was hard as a new grad to, to figure out what to say. And I think this was previously or previous to our um, incorporation of the LNIC modules into our curriculum. So I felt very much just kind of thrown out into the, into the wild, but um, mm-hmm. you do figure it out. However, I think it's very nice to have that prescriptive kind of format and that education and training. And you bring up a point of not knowing what to say. And that is consistently what we hear is one of the biggest concerns for students and for faculty is how do I teach students what to say? Because really, you know, each death is different and every person is needs different things in those final days of life. And different family dynamics, right? You can, there's not necessarily this, say this, then this, then this, and you're good to go, right? Uh, I teach my students and they're in the LNEC modules too, but kind of building a toolkit of, okay, is this when I need a screwdriver right now? Or do I need a hammer right now? Or what tool do I need to navigate this scenario? But that's where simulations can really come into play because it's really, it's uncomfortable, right? We've been there as nurses. Those those first couple experiences are uncomfortable. Like, am I going to say something that's going to offend somebody that's going to make things worse? So putting students in these scenarios where it truly is safe to make a mess of it, right? Um, I think it's helpful when you have your standardized standardized patients who are serving as the family members or you know somebody who they're dialoguing with maybe there's emotions involved. Um, you know, I can think of when we were doing a sim at, at CCN where Dr. Woods would cry every simulation for us and would would um, bring up those emotions. And students don't always know how to even respond to just an emotional response from a patient or a family member. So allowing them to just be awkward and have that conversation be clunky or for them to say, I don't even... I." froze. I didn't know what to do. Well, let's have it be in sim where then we debrief and, and then talk about it. When I do some of the sims that, that I've um, published and that are on the LNEC website as well. Um, I tended to do what, like a little pre-brief before every stage where we actually kind of talked about what are some things you could say, what are some of those strategies like ask, tell, ask, or saying, I wish, or, you know, what are some of those things in your toolkit and doing a mini review, and then a really being intentional about allowing students to practice using those skills. It's really helping them build their confidence in using those skills, as opposed to saying, hey, we're going to throw you in there and just see what you remember in a high-stakes, stressful scenario. Not high-stakes academically, but high-stakes emotionally and psychologically and all of that, right? Um, it's, again, we want to guide them through this, I, for me personally, I don't like when palliative or end-of-life care sims have just out of the blue curveballs because it's already stressful and complex enough for these students. Um, so you kind of touched, you already really touched on one of our other questions, which is, you know, how do you, what do you do with students that this may be too much for them or they've had a recent loss and that's an issue. And then you said that, um, you know, some students, it may be a week after and maybe something triggers so is, would there be benefit to not, not only debriefing them that day, but then to maybe come back in a week or two and, hey, let's, 
let's debrief again or let's discuss again or as a group or would you say that'd be better off in an individualized you know as the student needs i think it's individual because there's plenty of students who they're in and out of the scenario they learned they practiced and they're good to go right that um some of them maybe are very comfortable in those scenarios some of them they don't have a personal experience with loss that you know, for them, it was just kind of a learning experience. There wasn't that emotional piece. Um, and so everyone's different. I do think, though, from an academic perspective, it would be important to loop in the those students' clinical faculty. So, you know, all of the faculty, the clinical faculty who are working with those students, you know, especially if you've got adjunct faculty who maybe aren't, aren't in all of the classrooms, they may be not knowing what's going on necessarily in SIMS. Um, some schools I recognize the faculty do sims and other places it's a whole separate thing. So making sure the clinical faculty know that this has occurred so that they could just sort of be monitoring those students and maybe um, again, having that information so that if there is in the next coming weeks in clinical and experience like that, a, they can be encouraging and, you know, encouraging students to, okay, we've got, you've done the sim recently. What did you learn about it? How can you translate that in and apply it to your practice today, but also sort of monitoring for maybe some signs from the student that they are experiencing some distress. And then again, it's all individual, right? So I've had students that I've needed to take to a counseling center. Um, this was before I learned the value of content warnings. Um, you know, I had students that just were really upset and then others, they just needed to talk it out and then they were okay. Um, and then, then, but also leaving it open where if you have more questions, I'm here, reach out, um, making sure they know that there's some place they can go. So our question is, have you seen any differences in the way you prepare or the way you debrief or even student responses based on the age of your simulated patient? So if you have a pediatric patient versus a geriatric patient, I mean, were there any differences or is it pretty much the same across the board or does it, I guess, vary by the group or your population of students? I think there's always the need to debrief losses. I, I do recognize, you know, when we've done pediatric end of life scenarios, there is this added layer of complexity um, with it being a young child that, you know, some people it's like, okay, well, you're supposed to die when you're old. So if your patient's 80 or 85 or 90, it's like, well, okay, they've lived their life and this is the natural progression of things, right? Whereas pediatrics, it's like, you know, they, they struggle with, but this child's young, they shouldn't be dying. And so there's kind of grappling with that. I think also to some extent when you're doing pediatric or neonatal um, end of life scenarios too, I think it just kind of puts in their face a little bit more about death, right? Um, it just kind of makes them think about it in a new way because they maybe haven't thought about pediatric death. That's not a comfortable topic for people, right? Death isn't. <laughs> pediatric does even an added layer of that. And so I think it just makes them really kind of wrap their heads around a, the loss of a child. And that just needs more debriefing. So I think, you know, anytime you're doing these kinds of sims, to me, more time should be spent in the pre-brief and the debrief, really kind of build, reviewing their toolkits and reviewing the strategies, letting them know if there's going to be some something big that happens in that scenario again, so they're not 
thrown for a loop, but then also really giving ample time for the debrief because what we know in palliative care, when we, you know, when a patient gets bad news, right, where they're told they have cancer, they told you have this long to live or treatment's not working. We know a lot of times the brain kind of just goes into a freeze mode and they're not going to take in more information for a while. Same thing. I feel like in some of these scenarios is that for some students, that scenario can be sort of just like overwhelming and they need the time to just sit and think. Um, And so not just diving in and rushing through a debriefing, but actually allowing some spaces for pauses or just allowing there to be some silence for a while and not being like, okay, well, nobody has any thoughts. Maybe they do. They're just not sure how to articulate it yet. So I think having space, it might be helpful even just to allow students, you know, when they get in the debriefing room to just spend one to three minutes, just doing a mini essay, right? Where are they at with their thinking on this and allow them to reflect before you dive in just because we really want them to kind of be aware of where are they in their space, emotionally, physically, spiritually, psychologically, you know, all of those different domains, just how are they doing before we move into teaching mode again? Also notice that the ELNIC, um, the modules, there are more specialty areas for like pediatrics, uh, critical care, geriatrics. Like there are, it's not just one, I guess, one broad uh, module or one broad certification or whatever. It's all of these different pieces that you can actually kind of dive into as well. So I thought that was neat. Yeah, so Elnick undergrads really leveled for those novice learners who don't have prior healthcare experience to build upon, whereas Elnick Core, which was the first curriculum they made, is really for those nurses who've been in practice for some time, that they have those nurse, they, they have a nursing identity, they know nursing care. Now we're just saying, here's the palliative care piece of it that we recognize they most likely didn't get in their education. Um, I always, you know, it always surprises me a lot of times when I talk to faculty and students, students seem to know what palliative care is better than faculty because students are learning it. Faculty didn't have it in their curriculum. Um, and then uh, again, LNET graduate, same thing right there. It's for graduate students, but we recognize they probably have some nursing background. And then again, there are all of those different specialty tracks that if you're in a specific area, the palliative care experts from that field have kind of tailored to that. So our last question, if Heather has anything else she can absolutely tack on, is um, as far as palliative care end of life simulation, where would where would you like to see that go as far as in gaining you know more usage and in different ways that it's used? Where would you like to see that head, or where do you see that trend heading um, for nursing? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of schools. Um, have some sort of end of life sim, right? I think that's kind of something that we've seen a fair bit, not every school. And um, it's okay if that's something still in the works, but I think it's, we need to recognize that it's important to begin moving upstream with this, that again, palliative care starts with diagnosis with life limiting illness and nurses are going to care for patients much more often in a palliative care context than in an end of life context. Even when I was working in critical care, I mean, I'm, I'm doing symptom management and I'm navigating social needs and responding to spiritual distress. I was doing that for my patients all the time. Deaths were, you know, hit or miss. They would come, they sometimes there'd be a lot, sometimes 
they wouldn't, we wouldn't have some for a while, but I do think it's about helping students begin to really contextualize palliative care as that whole spectrum of illness and thinking about how, again, you can leverage existing simulations to, to help students realize that there's palliative care being provided there as well. Um, so not even having to build new ones, right? Taking existing sims and thinking about what are they doing for communication in there, right? So much of palliative care is communicating with patients and, and what do they understand about their diagnosis? What are their goals and wishes? What are, what are their questions? How, how are they doing with this diagnosis, right? There's so much that we talk about with communication, just even looking at CARES and G-CARE statements and saying like, are we, how could we use this sim to maybe amp up a little bit of those palliative care principles and align it with maybe one or two of those care statements and still keep the other objectives. You don't have to make it a palliative care sim. I think it's there's palliative care that occurs in many sims. Heather, did you have anything else? I don't think so. Is there anything else you want to share about that maybe we just didn't cover? Just wanted to let people know that there is, uh, so the LNAC webpage is housed within AACN. You can just Google LNAC and it'll take you there. Uh, but the last year or two, we've been building what's called the LNAC Faculty Corner, which is a part of the LNAC website specifically for faculty. And it's again, to support hospice, palliative supportive care education. But on the Faculty Corner, there's a whole section we've been developing of teaching and evaluation tools. And we have several simulations that are published there that are public domain faculty can use those. So if you don't have an existing end of life sim, or if you are wanting to get new ideas, uh, all of those say who to credit. So if you were to publish or disseminate, make sure you're crediting those, but we've got those ready to go. Um, so I mean, I recognize a lot of sim companies have their sort of repositories and Alain has a great repository but the LNAC Faculty Corner has others as well, and it's getting updated on a weekly basis, so more to come. And if schools or faculty have great palliative render of life care sims, send them our way, we like to share. All right, well, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it has been great to see you and talk to you and just to pick your brain on thank all of you. Yes, so nice to see you. Thanks for this opportunity, it's been great.